Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hey guys, I'm Nick. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from Amherst, Mass. And uh, my home group is the Springfield Speaker Group. We got the same format as you guys, I'm pretty sure. And I uh, just got it going, maybe. I've never had to have a microphone lifted up for me before. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was cool. <laughs> They're always going down, you know. Here comes the short kid. But, um... Yeah, just got it going a little while ago. People have been coming from all over the place to speak for us, and I really appreciate it, you know. So any opportunity I get to return the favor, I jump at it. Um, we were just over at the Axe Recovery over in Newark, Delaware. That was pretty cool. Heard a couple people that were awesome. Those things uh, really opened up my eyes in the beginning. You know, I got to see people from all over the place, different states, doing the same thing, getting the same results, all bright-eyed and happy, you know. Um yeah, okay. So I grew up in Amherst, Mass. That's where I'm from. Well, I'm from Belchertown. It's right next to Amherst. And, uh, you know, I, um, I don't have a soft story about my, uh, my upbringing for you guys. You know, I, I think the alcoholism started somewhere inside me. I don't think it started in my life. I had two parents that, um, loved me dearly, you know, and did absolutely everything they could for me as parents, you know. Because of the way I was, I was on the inside, I, I, I ran my mom ragged. You know, I, I exhausted her. And, um, you know, I see today why. You know, because right from, right from a young age, you know, I had a, I had an emptiness on the inside. There was something missing. You know, I was really into hockey. I was really into, um, like downhill biking and skateboarding and stuff like that. And, you know, I would, I would get into these things. I'd play hockey. I'd join the team. I started playing hockey and I was on the C team. You know, it only took me like a year and I was on the best team I could be on. You know, I was getting, um, offers for, different schools, different teams. You know, when I got into something, I was obsessive about it and I got good at it, you know. Um, and my parents were right there with me, supporting me with the rides and with the equipment and, and the support, you know. I remember my mom cooking me dinner at 8 o'clock at night, several nights. You know, I remember my mom waking up early in the morning on Sunday, you know, after she had worked all week and on Saturday after she had worked all week to bring me to hockey, you know. Um and she was right there. You know, but what would happen is that uh I would I'd find one of these things like hockey, you know, and I'd become really, really obsessive with it because it would make me feel just a little bit better. You know, when I got out on that ice and I, I was skating around and I was playing with a team and I scored the goal, you know, for, for a few brief moments after I scored that goal, I felt all right. I felt relief, you know, I felt like part of the team. You know, maybe it really wasn't that I felt like part of the team, you know, maybe it was that I felt better, so then I felt okay. You know, I felt recognized. If I was skating around the rink with a flag in my hand, you know, I figured you guys thought I was okay. You know, and so I got a little bit of relief from that. And um, I'd get obsessive about this stuff. But what would happen is that um, that would only last a little while. You know, that would only last a little while. By the time I made it back into the locker room or on the next shift, you know, I'd go sit on the bench after I scored the goal or I'd go sit on the bench after I knocked the big guy on his butt, you know. And just sitting on that bench watching the other guys play that are on my team, I would get back into my head, you know, and I would start to think again what you guys are thinking about me. 
you know, if my girlfriend in the stands is watching somebody else or something stupid, you know, or if the ref's out to get me or if my coach is out to get me, you know, and uh, and I'd become restless, I'd become irritable, I'd become discontent, and I'd feel a little bit empty in between, in between plays, you know, and so nothing stuck, you know, so basically between the time I was, you know, old enough to ask for stuff and the time that I had to move out of my parents' house because they felt unsafe with me there, my mom ran right next to me trying to make me feel better. You know, anything I could dream of, you know. And, um, I mean, I, that's something that, that's something that's just beautiful to me. I, I work a 12-step program. I have a sponsor. I sponsor guys. I go to meetings on a nightly basis and I still cannot wrap my mind around the unconditional love of my mother. You know, it's just something that's just bigger than me. Um, you know, but that was one of the things that I look at. And, uh, you know, so by the time I'm 18 years old, like I said, I can't live in my parents' house. You know, and this isn't because, guys, I'm like a dangerous guy. You know what I mean? I'm not like a bad guy. You know, I don't want to fight. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to scare people. You know, but what happens is that uh people that love me don't want me to do the things that I'm doing to myself. You know, and what I'm doing to myself is I'm screwing up hockey. You know, because drinking's more important. I'm screwing up school. I was never any good at it. There wasn't much there to screw up, you know. But I'm, I'm, you know, hurting school even more so because of my drinking. I'm hurting, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting in trouble with the law because of my drinking. You know, I'm sleeping until three in the afternoon because of my drinking. You know, and so any, like any caring mother, my mom wants to get, my mom wants to stop that. You know, what would happen is that, without even thinking about it, my stepfather, you know, this guy, he, he offered to be my dad when I was, like, six years old. Um, he offered to adopt me. Offered, you know. And, you know, by the time I'm drinking regularly, you know, he would tell me, Nick, you can't go out. You know, without even thinking about this, without even thinking about the fact, you know, that they support me. They they make it possible for me to play hockey. They make it possible for me to do this and that. And everything that I do in my life, they make it possible at this point. You know, um, without even thinking about that. I mean, I'd rip doors off the hinges, I'd pick up chairs, I'd throw them. You know, and this is just what happens to me when someone tells me, no, Nick, you can't go out and drink. You know, because sitting in my room at 16 years old, when I know there's people out there drinking, having fun, is torture to me. Absolute torture to me, you know. And I'm completely convinced that my parents are too overprotective. You know, I'm completely convinced that I'm missing out. You know, whatever it is, I'm just restless, irritable, I'm discontent. I'm jumping out of my skin at 16 years old in my bedroom, you know, dying for some way to get out. And, uh, you know, and so I was, I was, I just did that stuff, you know. And so at a young age, I was unable to live with my parents anymore. So I would, you know, I went and lived with my father. My father's like this hippie guy, you know, he lives way out in the middle of the woods. He drives like an old Ford T-Bird turbo, you know, and he drives fast and he, you know, he smokes pot and, and he's, you know, listens to loud rock and roll music, you know, and, and, uh, and he's pretty convinced that my mom's too overprotective too, you know, so he tells me, he tells me I can go live with him and, and I think it's on. You know, I think it's on. I'm free. I'm going to be okay. You know, this is going to be awesome. I go live with my da- my dad. I get a job at a skateboarding shop. You know, sweet. I got everyone convinced I'm homeschooled. You know, I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm walking. I got an apartment at like 16 years old. You know, my dad lives over here in the woods, and he's got his name on this apartment in downtown Amherst for me at 16 years old. 
and I, I'm convinced I got it. You know, I got y'all fooled. And uh, I'm walking to work, and I'm drinking, you know, I'm drinking out of a Gatorade bottle on the way to work at 16, 17 years old. And I think it's fun. You know, I cannot wait to get to work to, uh, to like, share this with the guys I'm working with that I'm already drinking, you know. And, um, you know, and, and, and they thought it was funny. You know, they thought it was funny. But really quickly what happened, guys, was that, like, you know, even this this really free lifestyle for a 16 or 17-year-old, you know, I don't have to go to school. I don't have to do anything. I don't want to. Even that really free lifestyle, I can't even stay in the bounds of that. You know, I can't. Because what happens to me, guys, is that no matter what, I'm telling you, I, I don't have enough time to list all the different circumstances that I've been through. And I'm, I'm young. I don't have the time to list all the different circumstances that I've been through. I don't have the time to list all the different people that have been closely in my life. I don't have time to list all the different places I've lived. But what I can tell you is that every single set of circumstances that I put in my life trying to make myself okay fell short. And after a short period of time, I was restless, I was irritable, I was discontent, and I felt like there was something missing. And I was absolutely convinced that it was because of these circumstances in my life that I was not okay. No matter what happened. I lived in Louisiana for a while with an aunt. You know, same thing. The aunt was willing to go out and drink with me. You know, the boss knew I was going out drinking. He thought it was funny. You know, he was willing to put up with me being a little hungover in the morning. You know, again, like, perfect. You know what I mean? I, I, uh, I exceeded those limits, you know, again and again and again. And, um, you know, so finally, finally I'm back home and I'm completely trespassed from my family's um, house at this point, you know, and, and I've lived with my father and I've lived with my stepdad. Nobody wants me anymore. You know, nobody wants me. Um, and so I'm bouncing from couch to couch to couch, you know. And uh, at this point I'm the guy borrowing your socks. You know, <laughs> you know, and um, actually, I'm borrowing my buddy's shoes tonight. That's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, but at this point, I'm the guy borrowing your socks. You know, I'm I'm sneaking out after your parents go to work. I'm sleeping in your closet or in your basement, so your parents don't know I'm there because I've completely overstayed my welcome. You know, and uh, I'm just looking for any opportunity that I can to get drunk to have a place to stay. You know, um, to feel like I'm part of, you know, and, uh, I mean, I look back at the things that I did in that time, you know, and there was all sorts of rules that I had, like rules with friends. Oh, I'll never do this. I'll never do that. You know, I crossed them all. And, uh, you know, so I was trespassed from my house. I couldn't go to my dad's. I couldn't go to my mom's. Finally, I ended up, you know, doing like the, uh, I got put in the shelter. And uh, that was the last place that I was, last institution that I was. And in the last year where I was actually able to go to institutions, you know, was I was in the mental hospital like three times. You know, uh, I tried the, the uppers, the downers, the inners, the outers, the well-butin, the not-so-well-butin, you know, <laughs> all that stuff didn't work. And um, tried the uh, tried detox, you know, went in and out of those. And then finally, I'm in a shelter, and my mom tells me that if I can just get sober, she'll let me come home and I can work for the family business. I'll tell you guys right now, nothing. I didn't want anything at that current moment more than I just wanted to get sober so that I could go home. You know, most of the time I want a lot of stuff. 
you know, I need the girlfriend, I need the car, I need the job, I need you to stop calling me this, I need you to start calling me that, you know. At this current moment, all I wanted was to stop getting drunk and high so I could go home with my parents. And about a week after I was at that shelter, you know, that picture in my head that I had pictured, me being sober and going home to live with my parents, didn't happen soon enough, and I didn't have the option. I did not have the option. I needed relief and I needed it then, you know. I needed it now. And I and I had to go out and I had to get drunk and I had to get high. You know, I don't get mad at my friends today, you know, the ones that uh, have not yet found a solution, have not are not yet living with a with a higher power in their life because I know. I know. It it has to, you know. Has to. I had to. I did not have an option, you know, and even today like, I don't, I still don't have any more power today than I did back then. You know, today, if I, if it goes too long before I tap into this higher power, before I, I use these 12 steps to stay connected to something greater than myself, you know, the first thing I, I do is not pick up a drink. You know, but right away, I'm powerless over the way I feel inside. You know, that empty feeling starts to come back. I don't want to feel like that. I never wake up in the morning and decide that today's an okay day to be restless, irritable, and discontent, you know? I'm still just as powerless over that. And as soon as I have that restless, irritable, and discontent feeling, I am almost as powerful over, you know, that drink that I was that day as I am over my character defects today. You know, if I let that go too long, next thing you know, I'm trying to convince you I'm right, you know? Next thing I know, I'm chasing money, property, and prestige, and it just happens just that quickly, you know, just that easily. You know, today the only thing that I think is different is that, um, you know, I've had a spiritual experience. I've had an experience that, um, you know, instead of when I was at that point, instead of going and getting relief from a drink or a drug, I found relief in, uh, in actions, in the 12 steps, you know, guided by some people that had already done those actions. And what I got was relief. You know, I had an experience with, with a spiritual connection, and that gave me relief, you know. And today when I start to feel that restless irritability, you know, I can I can pursue that connection and uh, and stay on track. You know, but back then I did not have that, and I didn't have that option. And after a week in this, in this, uh, sorry, in this shelter, I was back out and I was running for the next year. And for the next year I had no option. I woke up in the morning and... The first thing that came into my mind was, how am I going to get what I need to be okay? How am I going to get what I need to make the noise in my head stop? I had two other people running with me. My other thought was, how am I going to get what they need so that I can keep them with me? You know, because they had talked about detox. They had talked about going home to their parents and asking for help. You know, and I was well aware of the fact that if I couldn't keep it in them too, that I might be doing this alone. You know, and I couldn't stand to think about doing it alone. I tell you guys, I went through some crazy stuff in that time. I put myself through some crazy stuff during that time. You know, um, tell you about it in the parking lot. You know. <laughs> but, uh, the last, the last night, you know, the last night, it wasn't too crazy. You know, the circumstances of the last night were not too crazy, you know, but it ended up me running away from, uh, police officers in a, in a station wagon through cornfields. And I got away. You know, and I had to wrestle with a, a manager of a store that night, and I ran around in the swamp trying to get away and got back into the car and made it back to my hotel room, you know. And that was not the stuff that scared me. That stuff was okay. I was willing to pay those prices, you know, to do what I was doing. What scared me is when I got back to that hotel room that night, I didn't 
have anything in me. I was sober. You know, for the first time in a year, I was in that hotel room sober. And I was in the bathroom. You know, I, I had gotten completely muddy from head to toe. I was unable to carry anything with me. So the clothes on my back were all that I had. So I'm standing in that hotel room with no clothes, getting sick in the sink, staring in the mirror, solely because I was getting sick in the sink and I couldn't lean over to the toilet. And uh, I was absolutely terrified to be the guy that I was. I was absolutely terrified to continue living the way I was living. And the scariest part about it was that I didn't know a way out. You know, I did not know a way out. At this point, I admitted to myself that that was my only option with the tools and the resources that I had. And, um, you know, guys, I, I wouldn't have told you that this night or the next day, but I honestly believe that that's, you know, that's when the grace of God entered my life. You know, and I don't think that, um, I don't think that that was the first time the grace of God had entered my life. I don't think that was the first time that the door opened or that I was nudged in that direction or however you want to look at it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, you know, but I do look at that day and I, I you know, that's what I looked at when I started talk. people started talking to me about God in these rooms. I looked at that experience because the next morning after I got that desperation, that moment of desperation, the next morning my mom woke up out of nowhere. I hadn't talked to my mother in eight months. She went down to the courthouse. She sectioned me. Which means when I am picked up by police, I'm going to be looked at like a sick individual. I'm going to get sent to detox rather than getting sent to jail. And that very next night, the car that I had been driving state to state through cornfields, you know, away from cops, broke down on the side of the road. And there was a state police officer following right behind me. And the state police barracks was about two miles away. You know, I was taken in. I was taken in. I had warrants because I was on probation and stuff like that when this rant's run started. So I was taken in with enough means to be held, and I was held for three days, and i got to tell you guys about what happened when I got there, because I think it's funny, but I think about it a lot. I don't know. Uh, you guys don't know. But uh, <laughs> I got to jail. I got to jail, and uh, there's these guys sitting around the table, and one of them had a tattoo on his back about this big, and it was a skull. And if any of you guys have that, I'm not saying anything bad about the giant skull in the back. It was just intimidating. But I ran right up next to him, and I sat down next to him, and I was like, hey, do you play spades? Because I play spades. I learned how to play spades in juvenile hall. And uh, if you play spades, I want to be your partner, you know? Just out of my mind. No. <laughs> out of my mind. You know, my next question was like, you know, do you know how to make mofungos? Because I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten in a month, and I heard mofungos are awesome. You know, and he looked over at me. Good, you know, it was really nice that he was a nice guy. And he just looked over at me and he was like, Kid, you are way too happy to be here. <laughs> you know? I, you know, I probably, I don't remember what I said, but the thoughts in my head probably weren't, yeah, I am. You know, but I look back in hindsight, guys, and, you know, that was probably the safest that I had felt. That was probably the easiest that I had breathed. You know, in a long time. Because I was not in control. You know? I was not in control. I was safest at that point when I was not in control. That's that's who I am. That's why I'm here tonight. You know, because if I'm in control, my life is in danger. And, uh, you know, so I, I made it through that jail. I think I stayed there for a couple days. I had met a guy in a courtroom. You know, another one of those times where some... Something outside of myself, you know, 
Like my mom that morning waking up and going down to the courthouse. You know, something out there worked. I was in this, this courthouse over in Holyoke and I had, you know, I've been there many a times, but this time I was there to get a, uh, a charge for a charge. And I was going that day to get a guilty finding. And I had an opportunity three or four times before that to go in and get this charge dropped. Just completely dropped. Again, when I got this charge, I was, you, know, you guys don't know what Holyoke is, but Holyoke is a Latin King run neighborhood. I was on a Latin King run street, which is like a prison gang. And I was standing there with hair about down to here and a Quicksilver shirt with strawberry milk and ripped blue jeans. And uh, and this cop pulled up to me and asked me what I was doing in the neighborhood. And I'm pretty sure I asked him what he was doing in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know? And uh, so they searched me. And um, so I'm in there trying to face this charge. And, and sitting in, in that courtroom, I had had three opportunities, three or four opportunities to go in there and get this charge dropped. But at that time in my life, I couldn't take three hours out of my morning to go into court to get this charge completely dropped. Because three out of my mor- three hours out of my morning meant that I had to be in my head for three hours, sitting in that courthouse with the security guard over here, the judge up front, and my mom sitting next to me because I couldn't get myself there. You know, and I was unable to give up three hours of my life where I had to be separated from a drink and a drug to go get this charge dropped. Somehow I made it in that day with my mom, you know, and I was feeling like a jerk, you know, because today I'm getting a guilty charge. That means I'm losing my license for a year. That means I got it on my record. You know, now when I fill out the application, I got to write yes, you know, because I couldn't show up to court. And um, what happened that day was there was a kid about my age before me, and he was going up in front of the judge. The judge told him, listen, kid, you can't pass your drug test. We've, we've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. You can't do it. You know, uh, we're going to have to send you to jail. I knew exactly what was going on there, you know. And um, this guy got up there with him. And you guys met him. You know, Dave Perry was just down here a little while ago. I met Dave Perry in a courtroom in Holyoke down by me an hour and a half west of where he lives. And he just opened his mouth. And I don't think he mentioned AA. I don't think he mentioned, I don't know what he said. You know, I don't know. Um but uh, something that he said gave me a little bit of hope. He was talking about this group of sober people in Boston and that he was going to take this kid standing next to him with him back to Boston. This kid that grew up one town over from where I did, had the same exact drug problem, was around the same age, and couldn't stop either. He was saying he was going to take this kid with him back to Boston and the kid was going to be able to stay sober. Somehow I got hope. Just like when I was a little kid and I could picture myself you know, being the star of the hockey team, and I thought once I was the star of the hockey team, I'd be okay. For some reason, that day in that courtroom, I got the hope that maybe if I was back in Boston, you know, sober with this guy, I'd be okay. You know, and um, I wasn't quite ready. <laughs> so I got his business card. And when I was in, uh, when I was in detox at the end here, I called my mom, and she still had his business card. You know, and, and I called him up, and he was like, yeah, no problem, love to have you down. He remembered me, he remembered my mom, you know. And uh, so I, detox is over the day that I'm leaving. I go down to the parking lot because I'm getting picked up to be brought back to Boston. And the kid that was in court that day, you know, that couldn't pass the drug test, that was the same age as me, that grew up one town over from me, was still sober. And he was there with his mom's car, took time out of his day to come pick me up, you know, two or three hours away from where he was living. And he had gained some weight, you know, he looked good. 
and he was sober. <laughs> you know, and and I uh, I got some hope from that. You know, that was the first time the twelve the twelve steps had touched my life. I saw him, you know, just take time out of his day to come help me. It was kind of a funny ride home because I didn't know whether to sing the rap music on the radio or act like I didn't know the words to the rap music on the radio. I didn't, didn't know whether to wear my hat backwards or forwards. You know, I, I to say the least, guys, I was really uncomfortable to me, be me, sober. You know, because I was out in the real world. I wasn't in jail. I wasn't in detox. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't confined. And I was sober. And I was the most awkward I had felt in a long time. And so finally I get back to this sober house after a really long ride, you know, and uh, there I am. And I'm happy to be there, guys. I moved into a place with 130 people trying to get sober, into a city where there was meetings all the time. I could take buses to meetings. I could take taxis to meetings. And I was so happy. I was so excited to be sober. You know, I had all these great plans. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to get this. I'm going to date her. I'm going to wear that. You know, I'm going to work here. I had, you know, so many hopes and dreams. And what happened was that uh, really quickly I got that restless and irritable and dis- discontent feeling that I got, you know, over and over as a kid that caused me to be able to do nothing but sit in hotel rooms and use and um I'd come to these meetings and I'd sit in the back of the room and I'd look up at the person speaking and I'd, you know, hear them talk about how great their life is and I was absolutely convinced that it had to be something in their life. Somebody, something, some job, something to do with their bank account. You know, if it was a guy my age speaking, I was looking around the room to see where the prettiest girl was because I was convinced he was dating her. You know, when I went outside to smoke a cigarette, I was looking around the parking lot for the sports car because I was convinced he had it, you know. Because that's the only stuff that so far in my life I've experienced any kind of relief from besides drugs and alcohol. That was it. You know, I didn't know that anything else existed. I didn't know that uh, that there was a solution that, that starts in here. The only experience that I had had with my life changing or me feeling any different was the changing of the stuff in my life. You know? And so I figured that's what you guys were doing. <laughs> and uh, it almost killed me. You know, it almost killed me. Three months sober, I was a complete wreck. I was restless, irritable, I was discontent. I was living almost like I was living out in the streets, but sober, in a sober house in the rooms of AA. You know, I, I was not the guy that I wanted to be. I, I was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I was dating three different girls. Um, I was participating in illegal stuff to try to get more money. You know, and this isn't stuff that's always been e- that easy for me to talk about because I'm ashamed of it. You know, my mom was helping me pay for that sober house that I was living at. And I was still working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, because I was convinced that if I had enough money, I'd be all right. You know, so I would lie to my mom and tell her I didn't have any money. Sober. You know? And, uh, guys, I was unhappy to be me again. I was looking in that mirror, scared to be me, scared to continue living the way I was living, and I was sober. Somebody sat me down and... They opened up my eyes for the first time. Someone explained to me, you know, that an alcoholic is more than just someone that has a problem with a drink. You know, because here I am, I'm three months sober. I've been separated from the the drink and the drugs for three months, and my life is still a problem. You know, my life is still a problem. So the problem somewhere in here, somewhere in here. You know, for some reason, I feel so discontent that the second I'm awake in the morning, the second I get out of bed in the morning. I start thinking about how to feel okay. 
How do I make myself feel all right? What do I got to do? Who do I got to, where do, what do I need to make Nick okay? You know, I had two roommates in this sober house. They wanted to move out of my room because I had so much dirty laundry around my bed. And I tell you guys, like, I didn't do laundry because I couldn't take the time to gather my clothes together, bring them downstairs, and wash them because I was that busy trying to make me okay. I didn't have the time to do laundry, so I just buy more clothes. You know, I was that nuts. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's funny. It's funny to laugh at, but, like, I, I know what it's like to be in that spot in my head, you know. I, I can barely carry on a conversation with people when I'm, you know, that consumed with myself. You know, and nothing's nothing's good. Nothing's fun. You know, I, I can get everything I want, and I'm still restless, irritable, and discontent. I'm still empty. I still feel like I want more. You know, and then I come to these meetings, and I sit in the back of the room, and I see people in the front of the room that are happy, and I'm just wondering why. Because at this point, I do. I have a little bit of stuff, you know. I remember a, a night really distinctly. I was at this meeting in Dorchester, and his kid had celebrated a year sober. You know, and I saw him and his buddies leave the meeting, and I saw him slapping fives and giving each other hugs and walking across the meeting, and I'm like, what the hell do those guys have, you know, that I don't? Because I was dying on the inside. I was sitting in the back of the room with my hood on, with my hat down, looking at my shoes, you know. And um, somebody sat me down and they talked to me about that. They, they told me that uh, the way they look at it, they got a hole in their soul, a spiritual disconnect from God and from their fellows. You know, and I'm not really, like, I, have, I have, don't have any conception of God at this point. You know, I don't know. I don't know what that is. But what this person started to talk about was that empty feeling. You know, and that restless and that irritable and that discontent feeling. You know, and then they told me that I was self-seeking and I told them that I didn't think I was. You know? <laughs> and they started to point out that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I immediately start to take actions to try to make myself feel okay. And then throughout the entire day, I continue to do that. You know, they started asking me, like, Nick, what have you done for, uh, you know, another alcoholic today? And the answer is nothing. You know? The answer is nothing. Even, you know, I read that, uh, I read that passage in the big book. It talks about, you know, us as an actor trying to be a director. You know, that was like me. That was me in plain English written in a book. You know, I, I connected with that. Because I'm running around all day trying to arrange things in my life sober to feel okay. Things aren't getting arranged and I'm getting upset. You know? And what I experienced, guys, was when I, when I, met that when I reached that point and somebody opened up to me and they opened up this idea to me I had a lot of answers there was a lot of stuff going on that I thought needed to be changed you know for me to be okay and my experience is that coming to that person with all those things that needed to be changed that I don't I, I don't know if two of them got changed but everything inside of me did you know somebody told me a spiritual experience is that moment where everything feels different, but nothing has changed. You know, and that's what happened in my life, guys. That's what happened. You know, I got presented with the 12 steps. I got presented with a spiritual way of life. You know, I remember I remember asking people, you know, is this spiritual? You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know, you know. And, uh, you know, so what I started doing was I just started spending time with these people that were living this this lifestyle. You know, and, and I couldn't, I'd sit down and I'd do step work, I'd get up, I wouldn't remember a thing we talked about. 
You know, I'd read the big book, I'd stand up, I wouldn't remember a thing I read. But what I consistently did was I got in the car with people that were practicing the 12 steps. I got in the car with people that were living a solution. And I tried to help them carry this message. I tried to help them with whatever they were doing. I went on trips like this, you know, and I held the map, you know. I did whatever I could. I, I remember not not saying no, you know, to anything in AA because I was so desperate. Because I had connected with, you know, what you guys were sharing me with, with that hope. And what I got was results. Before I could re- tell you what the 12 steps were, you know, before I could tell you where to find step three in the big book, you know, before I could tell you what a spiritual experience was, I was having one. You know, because I got in that car and I started to take those actions. I started to think of another alcoholic before I thought of myself. You know? I started to, uh, you know, to, to do a searching and fearless moral inventory on a daily basis. You know, when, when I would come to, you know, my sponsor and I'd have a problem. And they'd ask me, you know, well, what were you trying to make happen? And I'd tell the truth. You know, I started doing that stuff before I knew what it was. And I started to get the results before I knew what they were, too. You know? And then my sponsor told me that this stuff is based on spiritual principles. And yeah, you know, when I was a kid, before I knew what gravity was, if I rolled off the bed, I was still going to hit the floor, you know. And, um, you know, and at that point, before I knew what everything was, I was still getting the results. And what happened was I I liked these results so much that I I did the 12 steps. I I met with a sponsor regularly. I I read some of the big book, you know. I, I did a written inventory. I um I did it as the best as I could, and I still to this day do the best that I can, you know. And um and what has happened is that today I've got, you know, I've got this perception of the twelve steps and this experience with the twelve steps, and I go out and I try to carry that to other people. You know, I've got a friend that uh grew up in in DSS, you know, and he grew up with without his parents in his life, and all he knows is the street life. That's all he knows, you know, and today I go to visit him in jail and he looks at me in the eyes and he tells me, Nick, this is just who I am. This is just who I am. I'm just a liar, a cheat, and a thief, you know, and I can look him back in the eyes and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's not who he is and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if he's willing to take some actions similar to the ones that I've taken, that he'll get the results and he'll get to live a free life too. That's my experience, guys. This is my experience. On a daily basis, I can live free from alcoholism by taking the actions that my sponsor showed me. On a daily basis, I can help others to live free of alcoholism by sharing those actions with them. And it works. You know, it works. It works for me in my life. I look back at at where I was. You know, I I was robbing stores to get deadly substances to give to my friends to keep them with me (laughs) three years ago. You know, and today uh, my life is full. You know, my family's back in my life. I have tons of friends. You know, I got a house that I got three extra bedrooms. People live with me off and on. You know, so we got like this big family thing going on. I got friends that come over and stay over. I can come out here and I know people. I can go to Boston and I know people. I was just over in um, Baltimore and I was spending time with friends. With friends. You know, not not people that, you know, to go get drunk with. I was spending time with friends. You know, and um, I didn't know this stuff existed. 
You know, so when people were up in the front of the room when I first got to AA and they were talking about, you know, how great it is to have their family back, I had not experienced that love. I had not experienced that connection with my mother at that point. Today I have. And when I was sitting in the back of the room in the beginning, I hadn't. So I didn't really connect with that. You know, so if I can share anything with you guys, you know, it's it's the fact that for three years, not only have I been happy when I've been practicing this stuff, but a drink and a drug isn't a problem. I'm not fighting the good fight. Here's the thing, guys. If I don't maintain my spiritual condition, I become restless, irritable, and I become discontent. I become empty. At that point, I don't have control over my actions. But if I consistently take spiritual actions, you know, if I consistently practice the 12 steps, if I help others, if I try to carry a message, I consistently feel full on the inside. You know, and that stuff isn't a problem. And the coolest part is that these actions that I get to take, you know, carrying a message, it's become the coolest part of my life. It's become the most fun, the funnest thing I do. You know, I love it. I love it. I'm 22 years old, guys. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I've always wanted to be the coolest kid in school. You know what I mean? I've always wanted to be that guy. You know, and today I run around in AA rooms. And, and I love my life. I'm living a life not by my own design, you know, but definitely one that I'm okay living in. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.